Jedi Council is a podcast for entertainment and informational purposes only. It should not be used in place of advice from a mental health or medical professional. If you're struggling with mental health issues, please seek professional help. Hey folks, welcome back to the next episode of the Jedi Council podcast where we like to explore mental health and your favorite fictional characters. This is Brandon Saxton. I almost just forgot the tagline to this podcast. <laughs> is it because we were talking about so much irrelevant stuff just before recording? I think so. That okay. must have been it. Okay. Yeah. My mind was all over because we really did a rapid fire of topics. Right <laughs> <laughs> well, you have so much time. Got to get through all of them. I'm Katie Gordon. Did you already say your name? I sure did. Okay, go. <laughs> How are you doing today, Katie? I'm doing fine. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. Feeling pretty productive today. Uh, everyone who I know in Florida was okay from the mm-hmm. hurricane stuff, so things are okay there, and yeah, just overall feeling kind of good. We're about a quarter of the way through the semester already, so that's flying by, and yeah, that's kind of... I got to read DC Metal, number one. Nice. That was good, yeah. And you got the awesome Wonder Woman cover. It's, uh, Jim Lee's art is just unbelievable, yeah. I could have that, like, a full wall-sized poster and be pretty happy with that. Yeah, I thought that was really good. And uh, Frasier watched 2017. I just had season six of Frasier. <laughs> nice. So, yeah, Frasier got everyone fired. Oh, yes, I now, remember this. It was a great episode, which, of course, was the season five finale. Because I was just like, yeah, Frasier's just standing up for people. He's uniting everyone <laughs> and, and trying to get people's jobs back. And then gets the whole station fired. <laughs> <laughs> his, like, his great ideas often do backfire. <laughs> oh, yeah. And then I won't get... I am going to get a little caught on Frasier again, which is too bad because we really have limited time today. But I love the episode where Niles is finally going to ask Daphne out. And then it that episode gets so cringy, yes. though, because then Phyllis comes over for dinner. Yes. And there's just so much going on in that episode. But I really did love it. That was another one that really stuck out in my memory. Yeah, those definitely remind me of the like theatrical farce thing where like everybody's has a misunderstanding yes. and they're all trying i mean it's similar to the one with the two mrs cranes where it's yes. just kind of and i feel like that really draws on david hyde pierce and kelsey Grammer's theatrical experience yes. which you can see which is really really fun and uh, maybe after rick and morty maybe we will do a fraser episode or we can wait till you're done so no sure. rush actually winona earp is first right. we're going we to have, have a special guest on um, who is going, his research, he's a psychologist, a health mm-hmm. psychologist, and his research is on stress and pregnancy and how that affects um, outcomes. And so we're going to talk with him about his research and also connect it to some of the recent season of Winona Earp in which she is pregnant and undergoes some mm-hmm. stress, and we can talk about that. So if you're a Winona Earp fan or just interested generally in health, physical, mm-hmm. or mental health issues surrounding pregnancy, feel free to contact us and mm-hmm. let us know, and we'll look forward to creating that episode next week. Yeah, that'll be really fun. And then for Frasier, I did have an idea for an episode that, of course, I'm pitching to you live. In the, <laughs> the I think it is the season six uh, first episode is when Frasier is dealing with the loss of his job. And mm-hmm. they frame it in the stages of grief. And Niles talks about it in, like, they come in this specific order. And, of course, we know that grief is a little more complicated than they present in the show. To no fault of the show. They're just being entertaining. So I thought, I know we've talked about grief a little on this show. But I thought that might be one potential idea of almost a million within the Frasierverse. That is a good idea. And there's also, do you remember that Monk episode where he's going? 
going through grief when he loses his therapist and, and not specifically. they talk about it's the stages so long, of grief. But... but you know, that would be good because stages of grief are something that most people are familiar with because mm-hmm. it is brought up in fictional portrayals mm-hmm. a lot and maybe it would be worth going to that. Um, so I think it's a great idea. One other announcement to our listeners is that Brandon and I have noticed that people are super into Rick and Morty. It's true. Side note. Rick and Morty, there was an art book released by Dark Horse really? Comics That's for cool. Rick and Morty, I think from the second season. I That's think awesome. it came out yesterday. It I'll looks check pretty that out. cool. So we've noticed that people have a lot of questions about it. A lot of people are interested in it. So Brent and I have been considering whether it might be worthwhile to make a Rick and Morty podcast yes. where we go through the episodes and talk about the psychological aspects. It would be similar to our first episode mm-hmm. on Rick and Morty where we kind of uh, take apart the individual episodes of the show mm-hmm. and talk about psychological themes and aspects. So first of all, if you're listening to this, let us know if you'd be interested yes. in doing that. It, and it, uh, mm-hmm. it, Just to be clear, I think you made it clear, but just for my own clarity, it mm-hmm. would be a, a really an episode by episode sort of thing yeah. is what we have in mind. We'd uh, pick, pick the episode or we would, ideally cover every episode we haven't totally figured out the order yet but yeah watch the episode a lot like our pickle rick episode and just break it down uh, as far as we can yeah Yeah. we don't know if we're gonna go chronologically if we're gonna go machete order yeah there just there's a big debate about it we're working out the fine details (laughs) yes but the point is it would be separate from jedi council yes um specifically focused maybe for each podcast episode we will watch two Rick and Morty episodes and and comment on those. So if you're interested, let us know. Secondly, we have reactivated our Patreon, which we Mm -hmm. didn't really do anything with before. Mostly because we don't know what to do with it. We don't, but we are working on that. So look for an announcement because a couple things is we would like to expand and improve what we do a little bit. So there are a couple things that we're interested in. One, if we do have a new Rick and Morty podcast, just being able to... uh, Post that podcast yeah. on Podbean podcast, for a separate thing. They cost money to make. They do. Yeah, absolutely. They do. And so it would be I th- raising a little money for hosting that. And then possibly we've talked about microphone or other types of software. Yeah. So anyway, stay tuned for more on Patreon. But the first task is let us know if you're interested in a full Rick and Morty psychology podcast yeah. series from us. Yeah, that's exactly what it would be. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rick and Morty psychology series with... We'd keep going with Jedi Council, too. Of course, but, yeah. Yeah. No, we're not dropping this podcast. No way. Too fun. Exactly. Can't pigeonhole ourselves just into one show when we have all all of shows. When we have all of the <laughs> Frasier episodes to talk about. Oh, uh, that's a whole new podcast. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, speaking of Rick and Morty, mm-hmm. unless you have any more announcements, should we dive into our Rick and Morty conclusion? Today? I think so. So... Where we left off last time is that we really talked about the psychopathology and mental health problems mm-hmm. that Rick was presenting with, found that he had symptoms consistent with antisocial personality disorder, mm-hmm. perhaps psychopathy, mm-hmm. it seemed to be an argument, which by the way, did you notice that in Hulu's description, they refer to him as sociopathic? Oh, I'm, I haven't seen that. No. Yeah. And so it's sometimes people ask basically, what is the difference between oh, a yeah. sociopath and a psychopath? And the truth is that often they're used interchangeably. Mm-hmm. Psychopathy within the mental health field is, I would say, the most current term, mm-hmm. at least within mental health fields. Other fields might do it differently. Yes. I have on occasion seen a distinction between psychopathy looking more at like this, referring more to kind of like the biological mm-hmm. and other social components that lead to that set of 
behaviors or personality characteristics. And some people refer to sociopath as more like someone who wasn't born genetically mm -hmm. predisposed to things like having a callous personality and fearlessness and all that mm -hmm. stuff. But they're in social conditions that are so bad that their behavior is like mm -hmm. that. But I'd say that's pretty uncommon. I think that oh, yeah. most of the time it's just interchangeably used with psychopath and that psychopath tends to be the term, at least in clinical psychology, mm -hmm. that we use currently, right? Uh, but terms change, certainly, throughout time. So, and, and also alcohol dependence, that there were symptoms of mm -hmm. that. Oh, yeah. And then we talked about how the therapist, we believe, from the Picklerick, the famed Picklerick mm -hmm. episode, had a hunch that... Perhaps Rick wouldn't be benefit from therapy with the attitude that he had towards therapy, which is basically belittling it and finding it useless, among other things. And so we talked about how we might approach the alcohol use problem, antisocial personality disorder. And I think where we left off is saying that there are actually, and we'll link to this, there are different evidence-based approaches for alcohol dependence and I think the ones that people are most familiar with are kind of 12-step programs like Alcoholics Anonymous. That's actually doesn't count as like a mental health intervention. I don't like the way I said that because it sounds like I'm putting it down, but I'm no. not. I just mean that that is run by peers mm -hmm. and non-professionals. And it there is evidence, at least in some studies, that it's equally effective mm -hmm. to other approaches that therapists might do. So in other words... People like Brandon and I aren't trained on doing a 12-step thing. That's running the community. And often people who have been through the 12 steps are running the groups themselves. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like a peer community-led thing, which is a neat thing. And it's also, you can find meetings almost any day of the week in most areas uh, by looking at their central website. So that's one approach that I think is most frequently depicted in fiction. Oh, I would agree with that. That yeah. I can think mm -hmm. of. When House went into recovery, was it a 12-step approach? I, it's been a long time for me since I've uh, went through House. I would say I, well, I finished it when the show ended. I okay. Guess. I finished the last season. Okay. Life. So it has been a long time for me. So you're testing my memory a little bit. So I don't remember specifically. Um, I, I'm, I'm wondering about Breaking Bad. The, oh, because yes. Because they depicted Jesse's significant other, and I'm forgetting her name, other than Jessica Jones. Right. Uh, it's completely taken over in my mind. <laughs> yeah, me too. I mean, the actress is Christian Ritter, but right. I can't remember what her character's name is off the top I of my head. I can't either. Uh, um, but I'm going to do a quick plug for Christian on Instagram. She's really fun and posts uh, a lot of cool stuff. On yeah. It, if folks aren't following her. Yeah. Uh, yeah, she's awesome. Yes, but I think she was a part of a 12-step program because she had yeah. the coin, I think. Yeah. So I do remember that reference. Um, and... I, it's kind of weird because, of course, it's it's something in my mind that I would tell people is so commonly depicted, but I'm having a hard time coming up with specific examples right now. No, Breaking Bad is I some of Jesse's recovery was in that the Sandra Bullock movie Twenty Eight Days. She was in a twelve step based program, and there are a couple others that that come to mind when they seek treatment. Mm -hmm. Right, that they're that that's kind of viewed as a thing. Like even thinking about. Um, Fight Club or something like that. He, yeah. he starts going to these twelve-step groups, and it's it, anyway. It's I think that's the most commonly known. Another major approach, and I'm just highlighting some of the major approaches: mm -hmm. uh, cognitive behavioral therapy. I have not that I can think of ever seen that depicted in a movie for treating addiction. But I'm not sure I've seen it depicted in ever for any reason in a movie. Mm, not 
by name. No. Or, although sometimes they mention it, but it's like a throwaway. It's not necessarily yeah. related to it. So the main difference between a cognitive behavioral therapy approach, and I'm generalizing just for simplicity's yeah. sake, we'll link to the bigger things. So within the 12-step model, traditionally, alcoholism, for example, even by the mm-hmm. name, is viewed as a disease and that the way to overcome it is to completely abstain. Mm-hmm. Basically, you always have that and you can't use alcohol, and that's the only way that you can overcome the problems associated with it. And do you think that's something that Rick would be into? Oh, no, I don't think so. Uh, I think that I think that would really fall under the kind of the same umbrella as therapy in a lot of ways for Rick, where he would see himself very much above that model mm-hmm. that... He's, he wouldn't, this is his words, kind of, I'm speaking as I think. Rick do the voice too. Well, I can't so do that. So it really, really has that effect. <laughs> I don't have, I don't have the Justin Rowland uh, <laughs> It good is such a distinctive, about. like, oh, way really of good. talking. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I think he would see that as being below him in that alcohol, like, nothing else really could mm-hmm. have a hold over him in that way. It's not a disease. No, that no, no, has, no, right? no. The disease model wouldn't work. I, I, I agree. Not, and so then cognitive behavioral therapy, one of the major ways in general contrast is that it doesn't necessarily take on the disease model, um, but what it, and it doesn't require abstinence. It can be what's referred to as a harm reduction model, meaning that a person could state that their goal is to drink more moderately than they do rather than abstain. In practice, when you do this, and there's a lot of controversy over mm-hmm. this, but in practice, what you find is that there are people who start out with the goal of moderation and ultimately do choose abstinence, mm-hmm. maybe because it, it ends up being too hard to drink moderately or they see the benefits and they mm-hmm. completely want to abstain. Or certain individuals have more proneness to having a harder time basically mm-hmm. moderating their drinking. But from the outset, cognitive behavioral therapy takes a it's it's more about like how do we limit the number of drinks? How can we problem solve? Mm-hmm what kind of thoughts might we challenge involved in yeah. this? And so oversimplification, but pretty big contrast yeah. from the idea that it has to be abstinence. So those are two approaches. A third approach that I think is maybe the least well-known outside of circles of maybe mental health and health, I would say, because mm-hmm. this is used by individuals for a variety of health things, is motivational interviewing or sometimes called motivational enhancement Mm -hmm. therapy and there is kind of famously one big trial that assigned people to the match study to three they were randomly assigned to 12-step cognitive behavioral therapy motivational interviewing and they found essentially equivalent effectiveness results one of the goals of this study was to identify what like individual characteristics mm-hmm. would make people to, so you can match them with treatment, right? That was right. the idea. So if you have someone like Rick who bucks authority, would mm-hmm. he do better where with something like motivational interviewing, which we'll talk more about in a moment, kind of makes the client the authority on yeah. themselves. But from what I understand, at least based on their study, a lot of that stuff didn't come right. out, which shows the importance of doing scientific studies. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not... Since then, there have been a lot of other Mm -hmm. studies, but that was kind of a a big one in the area. And motivational interviewing is certainly something that remains heavily used. So if you're a therapist and you're trying to pick with Rick what you're going to do, if you can get him to come, even in pickle form, (laughs) 
Uh, well, that has a lot of its own complications to sort of consider, but yes. How do you think he would respond to cognitive behavioral therapy, for example? Not well, I don't think. Okay. And and this is why. Because I think this is my experience, and, and, and I'd love to hear if yours is a little mm-hmm. bit different. When you pitch the premise of cognitive behavioral therapy, I think it sounds deceptively simple. Mm-hmm. People go, challenging my thoughts. Well, yeah. yeah, I can do that. Well, it's not always quite that easy for people. And especially once you sort of dig into automatic negative thoughts and that sort of stuff, it's a lot deeper and more complex process. But again, on the surface, it sounds deceptively simple. And I think because of that, Rick would sort of tell you or me or the therapist off. Sort of like, no, I, I, <laughs> I don't think so. I'm not interested in thinking about my thoughts and how they influence my feelings or emotions and how that impacts my behavior. I just do what I want. Exactly. So, so there's kind of like a disinterest mm-hmm. or in some views, maybe an avoidance of mm-hmm. thinking that. But also, I, I think what might be interesting too is that CBT is framed as a scientific way of thinking, right? You take the person's thought and then you look at evidence for and against it. So, for example, if someone is feeling depressed and they think, you know, I'm a total failure, then you look for evidence for and against it. You take Mm -hmm. a scientific approach to it. The thing with someone like Rick, who kind of really intellectualizes things Mm -hmm. and identifies as a scientist... I wonder if you'd be like, yeah, I already know all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So kind of behavioral therapy, what makes it work, it goes beyond the identification. That's kind of like the mm. first step. Yes, right. So it does require a kind of willingness and open-mindedness to hear about how, like you said, kind of your thoughts are connected to your behaviors and your moods and things like that. It's hard to imagine Rick fully engaging in that, Mm -hmm. but I personally, I would imagine him like turning it back on me or something if I was his therapist, like challenging some of my thoughts and with evidence or something like that. So I don't know. That's just a prediction. So that leaves us with the third option, potentially, if he was willing to come for motivational interviewing. And how do you think he would respond to that? I I would still, I think that this would be our best bet, mm-hmm. I, but I don't know if it would still work with Rick, uh, only because of just his general uh, perception and conceptualization of therapy. But I think if you could get him to sit, maybe, just maybe, a very clever therapist could maybe get him to buy into a little bit of motivational uh, interviewing. And I'm going to get a little bit ahead of myself here. But what we know about motivational interviewing is it's about eliciting internal motivation for mm-hmm. things. And we know that Rick has some motivation to do right by his family, even if he doesn't always. Deep down in him, what he sees as his toxic self, uh, he has emotional attachments to those people. Yes. I don't know. No, I, I think that's absolutely right. And so with motivational interviewing, it is about what's already there. So if someone mm-hmm. doesn't have the motivational, you can't do anything with right. it but motivational interviewing might be used to amplify or make the person aware of the motivation mm-hmm. that's there and kind of work through that motivational interviewing one thing that rick might like in that trial that i just mentioned it was fewer sessions i believe mm-hmm. it was four sessions off the top of my head um compared to like 12 sessions of cbt or something like that um 12 step programs are often viewed as kind of a lifelong thing mm-hmm. which you know one of the strengths is that they're with there being meetings available that people can go there. But, uh, you know, if it doesn't fit for someone, it is nice to know that there are other options in addition to the ones that we're talking about. So 
motivational interviewing, maybe we should go ahead and talk about the sure. how it came yeah, to be. That sounds good. Yeah, okay. we've been sort of hinting at some of yeah. the... Yeah. So it came to be out of sort of the that uh, motivational enhancement therapy and kind of that study was the one that I think really popularized it, right? The match study? Yeah. Or am, I rem- am I remembering that wrong? That was kind of when it came onto the forefront or, or kind of, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? That's when it really got a little bit popular, I think. Yeah. So like Bill Miller, who <laughs> was one of the main founders of motivational interviewing, I always find this fascinating about how therapy starts. Like cognitive behavioral uh-huh. therapy was Aaron Peck working with clients, and he was trained as a psychoanalyst and saying, you know, I don't think that's what it's about. I think they have these thoughts that we can challenge along with um, Albert Ellis and stuff like that. And then with Bill and Linehan, similar when she was talking about uh, dialectical behavior therapy, which is a treatment for borderline personality disorder and suicidal behavior, she had she has an irreverent type personality style, and that kind of got brought into the treatment. Well, Bill Miller apparently, I guess, was would people would observe him talking to his clients and it had a different feel they noticed to it. It seemed to have some of the Carl Rogers kind of um, approach, the humanistic approach Mm -hmm. in that he was, he seemed to be really listening and going in the direction of the client. It, It is different than what Carl Rogers does, but it was definitely different than like a confrontational, like you're drinking too much and right. this is what it is. I guess like if you've seen the reality show um, intervention, intervention or something, yeah. it was not the approach where everybody sits down and tells you this and then you go off to treatment. It was more like, hey, let's have an honest talk about the pros and cons of what yeah. you're doing. And, and so I guess after seeing him, they're like, what are you doing? Because that's different than what we've seen. And then he actually developed it and then they they tested it, which is important. A lot of people do stuff and it doesn't, it seems nice, but you test it and it right. doesn't work. But this is where science comes in handy. <laughs> it so, <certainly> does. <laughs> it does. So, so that's, it kind of um, came out of that. And so it's definitely informed by mm-hmm. some of the Carl Rogers stuff in that you approach the person with purposeful warmth mm-hmm. and non-judgment. But it is also has that client-centered feel mm-hmm. to it, right? And so, like, for example, maybe we could talk about, like, how would you start a session with Rick? Oh, yeah. Well, I'm, yeah, with Rick, it would be sort of tough. It is. It? It's hard. Rick is a, maybe we'll pick a someone a little example. less challenging. Uh, ideally, <laughs> and tell me if I'm thinking mm. about this wrong, and I'm having a really hard time thinking about it with Rick. You'd <laughs> yeah. want to think about where does this person want to get to. Yeah. And... And uh, what are, I mean, what are they doing now? And is it moving him toward or away from where they want to be? But the hard thing with Rick is he's always doing exactly what he wants. So it would be a little tricky with him. Yeah, but you're yeah, right. Eliciting change talk with him would be really hard because he doesn't want to change. Or if he does, he's so disconnected from right. it that it's hard to bring out. So that's I, true. You know, I think that I think about the way motivational interviewing often starts is listening to the person's perspective mm-hmm. totally i don't know how rick would respond to yeah. that but kind of getting rather than so like in the pickle rick episode the therapist is just like this is what i think about oh, you yeah. a b c and d and like that's not how motivational interviewing is right it's more open-ended questions mm-hmm. that's a big part of it you don't do yes or no questions you don't right. jump ahead you don't assume to know someone you just talk so rick you know i so some of your family might think you drink too much 
what do you think about yeah. that? And then when they say stuff like, no, I, if they say, I don't think that's true, you don't kind of point out, well, the evidence suggests otherwise. Right. For example, you, you black out, out right. and you're vomiting and hungover and a pickle or whatever, you know, right. just standard things. You kind of instead are like, yeah, tell me about that. And then when they start talking about, well, you know, I'm very successful at doing exactly what I want to do yeah. anyway, even though I drink, I don't think it's a problem. You kind of say, so you don't view this as a problem, right? You reflect back to them mm -hmm. and try to really understand their perspective. And you do this to some extent anyway, but I feel like it's much more intentional. And I should say, I'm not an expert in motivational mm -hmm. interviewing at all. We're just trying to give an overview for people oh, who yeah. want to look more into this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have done it before and been trained on it, but it's not... Uh, I, I'm not, I'm no Bill Miller or Stephen Wolnick. Like everything in Jedi Council. Yes. This is a primer. Yeah, a exactly. An primer. introduction. Yeah. yeah. So what do you, how do you think Rick would respond? I keep making you envision That's that okay. you're Rick. I'm really struggling with that. I'm giving no good answers because the idea of being in a session with Rick is really uncomfortable for me. Yeah. <laughs> I can understand why. I've worked with some challenging clients, but Rick is... Rick is something yeah, else. Yes, well, like, one thing that I think would get to me is that if someone is challenging your intelligence in your field, yeah. like, my response might be not, well, tell me more about what yeah. idiots therapists are. I might be, like, feel a little defensive. Like, Absolutely. my first instinct might be, like, I'm going to prove that I have something to, you know, like, to mm. contribute. But, like, I don't think that's particularly helpful, but that's usually, no. you know, which actually, interestingly, is a big part of motivational interviewing, right? If you push people, they push back. Yeah. That's human nature. So if Rick is like, your field is dumb, then, mm. like, no, it's not is the way to go. But the point is then you just get stuck kind of, like, you're stuck in conflict yeah. with each other. You don't really, it's not functional, basically. Mm. I even felt a little defensive just when I watched it. Yeah. It's like, Oh, that's not very nice. Exactly. I mean, of course, the point of the show was that not that therapy wasn't effective, uh, right. but that Rick wasn't uh, in a situation to be in therapy. But even still, even just his comments, I was like, I don't agree. Yeah. It's like, like, I extra yeah. don't care for <laughs> yeah. Rick now. No, I, I know what you mean. And so I think a skilled motivational interviewer would kind of be like, yeah, it's clear to me you don't want to be here and mm -hmm. you don't view this as a problem even though your family does and you get a really good sense of that and I think that sometimes that can set a different tone that I'm going to be another person telling you you drink too much, mm -hmm. right? Because that's not really helpful. And then what motivational interviewing has on top of that is specific suggestions for getting to what you said, which is trying mm -hmm. to understand what, what are Rick's goals here. Mm -hmm. So let's pretend his goal was to drink a little less for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, and some motivational interviewing does include things like getting a physical to see if there's been any mm -hmm. physical toll. Like you're just kind of looking at the situation. But the point is it's not a values judgment. It's not a moral thing. Right. It's very much like you said, what are your goals? And is drinking consistent with mm -hmm. getting you closer to those mm -hmm. goals? What do you think Rick's goals are? Yeah, I was just thinking about this <laughs> because I knew you were going to ask me. Uh, you've noticed the pattern. <laughs> <laughs> Say something, then deflect for yeah. the hard part. Uh, which is perfect. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a great question, isn't it? I this is, and I'm going to give a very poor answer. And my answer is, I don't think that Rick has goals. Mm -hmm. I think that he lives very much in the present, and he's not very future oriented, and he doesn't see himself moving towards something. Um, I think he just is. I. 
I think his goal is it's sort of hedonistic and it just is that I want to do exactly what I want right now. Yeah, and that's where I think the personality stuff comes in yeah. when you're if you're treating someone who has comorbid issues, so meaning they have more than one disorder, mm-hmm. right? If someone has depression and alcohol problems, like the, this shapes your approach. And in this case, it might be particularly hard, right? Mm-hmm. Someone who definitely doesn't want to be there and who kind of maybe he does feel he's doing what he wants. Now, if he was kicked out of the house, do you think that would impact his motivation level at all? Yeah, I absolutely think it would. Um, because even just, uh, you know, it, as much as he doesn't want to acknowledge it, I keep going back to this point, he does have some connection, uh, particularly with his grandchildren and Beth, not so much with Jerry. And even when that relationship that he had and that connection and the presence of being with his daughter and his grandchildren was threatened by Jerry, he orchestrated that entire event to get Jerry out of the house. Like he went to prison and then saved the grandchildren to see himself or make himself as a hero in Beth's eyes so he could influence her to ask Jerry to leave. So, so it's interesting. So there are some points of where he might care, but in a way, if he's getting away with the behavior, right. it's it's more like reinforcing to keep doing what mm-hmm. he's doing. And so as a therapist, one thing in motivational interviewing is you recognize their ambivalence. Mm-hmm. He might have some ambivalence, but it might not be that strong if he's kind of mm-hmm. getting to do what he wants. Yes. Whereas I think what is more typical with non-cartoon characters... <laughs> thankfully, is that if someone, say they're drinking, they have a ton of fun with their friends, but they're also missing some work, Mm -hmm. or they have um, asthma, and they like smoking pot and and smoking marijuana, and that's, they like the benefits, maybe it makes, they feel like it makes them have more fun, or Mm -hmm. they feel like it relieves their anxiety, but they also don't like that it makes their asthma worse or something. And so, what this really does is, like, let's talk about this as there are costs and benefits, mm-hmm. and I'm recognizing that you're gaining something. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you wouldn't keep doing this. Right. Like, there's something there. But let me see if there is underneath that all any way that you feel this is mm-hmm. interfering with your life. And sometimes people might say no. Maybe that's what mm-hmm. Rick would say, mm-hmm. at least under the circumstances he's he's in in that situation. I'm trying to think of, because sometimes you can, you're you very explicit about that. You right. can say, on the one hand... You really enjoy smoking marijuana. Uh, you feel like you're having a good time. Uh, it's a social thing. But on the other hand, you know it's really impacting your health. You're having a harder time breathing. You had to use your inhaler more. And there might be some long-term effects. If I got that right. And I'm thinking of how you'd phrase that with Rick. Because he'd yeah. say, on the one hand, you're enjoying uh, drinking alcohol and uh, and all the other random things that Rick does. However you'd phrase it. Of course, I haven't thought through. I don't know what I would say on the other hand. I'm, yeah. On the other hand, I, I mean, maybe you could, maybe there's something to say because you would have to, I know that Rick acknowledges the impact of alcohol on like physical impact yeah. from the Anatomy Park episode yes. with Ruben when he says, yeah, like, uh, I think he says something like alcoholism is the real monster here or something. Yeah, like that. I think I just watched it yesterday. Yeah. <laughs> I rewatched it. Yeah. In response to Ruben's uh falling apart body in some parts on internal yeah. So maybe you could appeal to that and say something like, you know, you're enjoying these adventures that you're having, but maybe you're cutting that time short with your alcohol use. In, and it's science too, right? right. Which mm-hmm. <laughs> might appeal to him. Like, so on, on one hand, you like drinking because it's tons of fun for you. And you don't like feeling hungover or mm-hmm. vomiting or whatever. Right. So it might be something like that. And it doesn't 
the idea here is that a therapist can't make someone say, let's all just focus on those negative physical right. effects. But the idea is that let's let's at least bring them to the forefront because sometimes someone who is dealing with these things, maybe perhaps Rick isn't isn't focusing on how unpleasant that is. And if mm-hmm. we can talk about that and kind of amplify that a bit mm-hmm. by talking about your distress, maybe the motivation to change will change a little bit. Mm-hmm. But again, it's always viewed as it's in the hands of the client, but the therapist has a very important active role to do the best that they can to elicit the maximal chances mm-hmm. for them wanting to change. One of the specific things that motivational interviewing does is in addition to kind of looking at both sides of things and trying to build motivation is respond to resistance. So like, let's say if Rick says, you know, um, everything you're saying is totally stupid and I reject it, you know, you know, you wouldn't say, you know, I'm the expert here. I know you can say, look, you know, you're, you're the one who knows your own life and you feel I'm being an idiot or whatever. Mm -hmm. And so you kind of respond to that. And so they're kind of, they, I like the metaphors that they often use that it's kind of like, you're moving with the person, you're like dancing or jazz music mm-hmm. or like in martial art terms, like you're doing judo, you're going with the way they're going rather than you're trying to force them to bend them to your will or right. something like that. And that is, uh, am, am I wrong? I think that is like uh, a common misconception for motivational interviewing yeah. for people who are maybe familiar with the treatment, uh, but not trained in it or familiar with the spirit of it. It's like, the idea is that you're going to motivate them to do something, and that's not. That's like you're going to do use reverse psychology right, yeah, or something, something like rather mm-hmm. than you're having a conversation with the person and you're trying to particularly, you know, elicit motivation in certain mm-hmm. ways mm-hmm. if it's consistent with their goals, right? right? What you said is one of the key mm-hmm. things, or at least exploring that. So, like, there's that whole first part. and um, But anything else that we should add to kind of describe that? Because I feel... It's hard to describe. It's like actually easier if you see that one, Bill Miller doing it because <laughs> yeah. you're like, oh, that's what you mean. Yeah, that's a good point, isn't it? It is sort of weird to describe because I don't know. It, how how do you sum it up? There's no easy way to sum it up. Really, is that? Yeah. yeah, that's kind of the tricky part with it. The point is to not just be someone else in that person's life saying, "Don't drink." Right. Uh, it's to um, try to engage that person in a way that's directive, where uh, you're helping them think about their goals and uh, and elicit motivation that they maybe already have or amplifying it, like you said. I don't know. Yeah, that's the key, I think, between, that's different between that and more the Rogerian humanistic thing. This is directive therapy. Yeah. It's not non-directive. You don't just go wherever the person is. Right. You're kind of going with them, but you have a goal in mind, mm-hmm. which is to motivate to reduce the unhealthy mm-hmm. behavior, right? And it is very much in contrast, though, again, from 12-step because it's not requiring abstinence it's mm-hmm. uh doesn't require some of a confrontation or or that you adhere to a specific model it's not like cognitive behavioral therapy either because a lot of it is you can help them problem solve and, and deal with their issues but you're not doing that from the outset you're assuming first of all that one key is seeing where they're at motivationally before jumping into any intervention right yeah. uh, but any anything else from you know that so I should say usually the way that motivational learning, they, it is broken into phases. And the first one is all about building the motivation mm-hmm. for change if it's there, responding to ambivalence mm-hmm. in a way that's understanding, validating, but also highlighting the other side of mm-hmm. things. Not in a reverse psychology way, but in a way 
with, so for example, if let's say Rick was like, you know, my relationship with my daughter is important and I do think drinking as much as I do is interfering with it, then you wouldn't just drop that and say, okay, well, there are some ups and downs. You would really talk some more Mm -hmm. about that. And if you notice the person pushing back a little bit about it, like saying, no, but it's not really a big deal and she's happy the way she is, then that's a cue to the therapist not to confront that and say, no, she is upset. Mm -hmm. I just talked to her, but rather say, so you don't think it really bothers her. So you kind of take this route of not, again, it's not this confrontational. It's like, bring me with you where you are. Mm -hmm. And like, let's see if we can build this motivation to change. And part of it also is enhancing confidence. So often Mm -hmm. with motivational interviewing, you have them rate how motivated they are to change. And some are motivated to change, but just don't think they can do it. Maybe Mm -hmm. they've tried quitting smoking cigarettes three or four times and they haven't been successful. So part of it can also be like, let's look at your life and see other areas where you have successfully done things and kind of building that confidence to Mm -hmm. change that type of thing. And then after, if the person does commit to want to change, you kind of strengthen the commitment Mm -hmm. to how they're going to change. And then you go into more of planning about like, yeah, I do want to stop drinking or cut it down. And this is how we'll do it. How could you do that? How likely are you to yes. do that? Things like that. Yeah. Exactly. What obstacles might mm-hmm. come up or what might make your commitment waver? I think that, these things. and at least on that phase, that practical part of it would maybe be appealing for someone like Rick, you know, the yeah. more problem-solving part. But Well, it's, it's certainly very action-oriented, which is one of mm-hmm. the things he's complained to the therapist about, which is a stereotype of therapy yep. that it's just... You're just making the person feel better by saying comforting things yeah. versus you're doing hard work to get yeah. through the issue. Yeah. Which they challenge in yeah. the show, actually. Because yes. Because Rick buys into that stereotype. Yes. But the therapist challenges them pretty hard. Oh, she does. And yeah. I think that I really appreciated that. Oh, yeah. Where she's like, yeah, it's like brushing your teeth. You know, maybe you don't want to do that, but mm-hmm. that's what you do to maintain yeah. your health and work through it. And I don't really think you want to do that. And mm-hmm. so I agree. I, I like that that part a lot. Um so I think that in terms of motivational interviewing, one other thing that it reminds me of in terms of like thinking about how appropriate it might be for Rick, which I have no idea, at least at this point. That's the other thing about motivational interviewing is that circumstances could change that would make one more motivated, mm-hmm. right, to do things like if he his relationship is threatened or something like that. But one of the things that stands out to me, and people tweeted us about this too, is his own conceptualization about what's healthy and what is unhealthy. Pretty amazing. Yeah. Yeah. And I could see that as being an obstacle too. So like, for example, in the... Well, do you mind explaining a little bit about some? Because I thought you explained it well before we started. Oh, sure. Yeah. That sounds good. So in the rest and relaxation. Mm-hmm. That's it. I'm like, I know yes. there's a there's a plan there relaxation, is, yes. but I'm going to mispronounce it. So I'll make Brandon do it. No, that sounds great. <laughs> uh, uh, 15 second summary of the episode. Uh, both Rick and Morty both kind of come to terms with that. They're really just worn out with the adventures. Even Rick at like the beginning is, I think, sobbing as well as Morty that they've just kind of pushed themselves too far. Uh, so they go to a day spa, and what they do at the day spa is have their cognitive toxins purged. Uh, what this ends up resulting in, uh, which isn't obvious right away, it looks like that maybe they were so negative that it kind of wrecked the world. But what it actually is is a new toxic world, and they've actually split their toxic selves and detox selves, is 
kind of maybe one way you could think about it. And both of those splits are based on the individual, Rick and Morty, their individual perceptions of what are their non-toxic qualities and what are their toxic qualities. And what's kind of interesting about that is for Rick, the things that he sees as toxic about himself are this version of himself that is very arrogant and very rude and, and pardon my language, kind of an asshole, mm-hmm. uh, but still very intelligent. That's the appropriate language for describing yeah. it. <laughs> uh, but also the part of him that has uh, emotional attachments, mm-hmm. uh, specifically to, to Morty. The detox Rick uh, doesn't have the emotional attachment to Morty. He's very friendly. He's very nice, though, and very kind. And he even, like, apologizes for burping. And he apologizes to the spa staff for how he treated them. Very unRick-like. Very unRick-like, yeah. Um, But then eventually the detox version of Rick takes advantage or manipulates or plays on the toxic version uh, Rick's. Uh, connection to Morty to kind of have them fuse back together into one uh, as the episode progresses. Morty's conceptualization is almost equally as interesting, though, because Morty's, uh, what he sees as his toxic qualities are his self-doubt, mostly. And so that version of him has a lot of doubt and is very submissive. But non-toxic Morty actually isn't a good person either, which is kind of curious, because he's very aggressive and actually becomes sort of like a Wolf of Wall Street kind of character. Uh, so it's kind of interesting to think about that and Morty's kind of a teenager and he maybe doesn't have clear conceptualizations of what are his good or bad qualities and really just wants to be confident and strong and aggressive. So there's a lot going on with both of them actually. And that they both, I don't, in my opinion, don't have healthy ideas of what are their good and maybe poorer qualities. And I think that speaks to one of the definite strengths of motivational interviewing, which is basically you are looking personally at what motivates these Mm -hmm. individuals. So, for example, if Rick views attachments to people as toxic, then maybe he doesn't, he's not outwardly at least going to view it as motivating to repair those attachments. It's Mm -hmm. almost like he views that as, in my interpretation, a vulnerability. Mm -hmm. And, like, he would be, his motivation seems, based on that episode, like it would more likely be, like, not care at all about any attachments to an even greater extent than he does now. But there's something to work with there because he had, he's acknowledging he has them in that Mm -hmm. they are there. Even if he has an extremely unhealthy appraisal of emotional Mm -hmm. attachments. And so it's interesting because you end up, it also shows like you end up making subjective judgments Mm -hmm. about things. Hopefully as psychologists, we try to look it's not always crystal clear, though, but hopefully, to some extent, most of us view attachments as healthy in that people who have good attachments tend to ha- report greater mm-hmm. physical and mental health. So it's not like just a value judgment. It's based on some mm-hmm. science. We Well, we are valuing that health, I guess. Right. <laughs> so Which, there's that. There's implicit value for physical and good mental health. I, I, I agree with you on that for sure. Yeah. But it does go to show how important it is to understand the perception because if you're trying to and values attachments and so I'm really going to talk about how it's impacting his grandson or his daughter and stuff like that and that's going to change his motivation, that would not fit him well. Or it might, but it's not as obvious Mm -hmm. because of how he views his attachments in the first place. He has them, but he wants to get rid of them. And so one other possible angle, and I know we're running out of time, that's why we need a whole new Rick and Morty podcast, is that you could view as like, mm. but it doesn't really work, right? No, I don't think so. so I mean, he makes some money, I think, through 
his adventures. <laughs> yeah, through his adventures and like things that he smuggles or weapons he builds and stuff. Okay. So, I don't know. There might be some way of looking at his... I don't know. He's tricky. There's a lot to unpack. He, there is a lot. And also, we're going based on kind of small, nuanced things that happen that are interesting. Yeah. But it's not like they're spelling it out for you. So. Right. No, they really don't with that show. There's a lot of small detail, for sure. It, it does. Um, in the last few minutes, I was going to very briefly mention one other episode from this season. Is sure. there anything else you want to mention about one facial interview? Uh, no. I was going to talk about... There's this pretty amazing theory uh, as to why... It's a fan theory, not related to psychology, about why Rick sees the um, talk or the attachments uh, as a part of his toxic self. And I'm going to try to sum up this fan theory in like 30 seconds because I don't want to use a lot of our time. But basically, and I read through it, and it's pretty interesting, and it's hard to ever say with this show because they put a lot of stuff in, and they kind of just tease you with some things. But the the insinuation or the implication is with the the Morty that we have is that he never meant Rick. But we've, until Rick came back, but we've seen now multiple times where Morty has met Rick as a small child in the form of pictures or flashback memories. So a lot of people think that this actually isn't the typical Rick and Morty, or these two weren't meant to be paired together. They're actually from different dimensions. And some people think that this Rick, who's the Rickiest Rick, you might remember, Mm -hmm. and he references the Mortiest Morty and, and allows that Morty to believe he is the Mortiest Morty. But a lot of people think the mortiest Morty is actually the evil Morty. Oh. And they think that because uh, we see them together when they're younger, what might have happened is because Rick was involved with Morty as he grew up, is that he turned into an evil genius, a lot like Rick oh. is. And so that's where the evil Morty came from and sort of challenged and overtook Rick. And so now he has this toxic view that if he stays attached to Morty, he's going to hurt him by allowing him to really become more like how he is, like might have happened with the original Morty. Oh. Who turned into the evil Morty. It's pretty interesting. That is deep. Yeah. It... I would not have generated that myself. <laughs> that either. is amazing. Yeah. It's pretty incredible the level of detail in the show and that people can discern. Yes. And also the nuance on what is really up with Rick. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Because then it's almost a protective thing. It is. Exactly. So, there's a lot there. Well... Worthy of a podcast. <laughs> That that is interesting. So that's yeah. So <laughs> this reminds me of the limits we hit sometimes when we're talking about fictional characters yeah. and doing therapy with them. Because like, if all that's true, like, there's no way I can possibly keep up with that. No, <laughs> like you need like an equally interdimensional understanding, whatever all this stuff, therapist. And I don't mm. think I'm equipped. I'll be honest about that. In all humility. <laughs> it's not really required or uh, built into the training model for clinical <laughs> psychologists at this time. So yeah. it's no shortcoming of our own. But yeah, we're not really made for that. No. Sort of the case conceptualization there is just really mind-blowing. I would do my best with Rick, but I'll be honest, a lot of it would be guessing. Yeah. <laughs> and hoping mm-hmm. and trying to not just get owned every second of yeah. episode by the stuff he says. So anyway, I didn't mean to eat up our last <laughs> No, no, no. I think that, that's but... really important and I like I said it does speak to the limits and like so basically my gut would be that with him motivational interviewing might be the closest, but I don't know. Yeah. And I guess it's important to say that in therapy it's important to track how people are right. doing if they're getting better if they're non-responsive and then adjusting according to that but we start off with picking one of the 
most effective empirical mm -hmm. treatments is usually our mm -hmm. approach. So, so anyway, I will. You have a meeting in five minutes. Yes, so. <laughs> it's a perfect so, stopping point. Yeah, so maybe we should wrap up there. I guess the only very brief, because sure. of course, but I'll keep it to very brief. The other thing I just want to say is that I thought the episode from this season with Summer having body image issues when her boyfriend breaks up with her because and she thinks it's and maybe it is because um, because he thinks that this other girl or woman yeah. is more attractive and one scene that i just really liked is when she goes up to her mom and is like mom am i hot and her mom like kind of stumbles over like well i don't think that a lot of energy should be spent on that question and then she just like summer bursts into tears and immediately tries to go change her body and stuff like that and so i think as i mentioned this before i think that it's so interesting that rick and morty has a ton of jokes and a lot of out there stuff but then it also brings this like real struggle of like how do i reassure my kid while not reinforcing that appearance is the thing that matters yeah. most and then i really love at the end when the mom ends up making herself huge like summer yeah. and then they connect that way and showing their relationship and i i actually think that was a pretty touching episode in those aspects so that's that's that definitely made the show I that was one of the things that I, I really drew me to the show. So, yeah, it's anyway. it's really good, and uh, probably I mean just that part by itself is worth like its own episode, yeah. honestly. But then we'd have nothing left for a potential <laughs> new Rick and Morty. Podcast, exactly. So. so I think we should wrap up our Rick and Morty trilogy. I think so too. We might revisit it sometime, but next week we'll be talking Winona Earp, and yep. then. There have been suggestions to cover borderline personality yes. disorder, and um, then a lot of good movies are coming out. Justice yeah. League, Thor, Star. So anyway, we've got a lot of exciting stuff planned. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be a lot Dead of fun. For Dead Council. Uh, stick with us. We really appreciate everyone who's taking the time to listen to our show. It really means a lot. It does. And uh, everyone who we're so fortunate to interact with, it seems like uh, people are just really enjoy tweeting with us, and I really enjoy tweeting with people, so it's a lot of fun. Um I'm slowly catching up to your good Twitter game, so we're getting there. <laughs> it's a blast. It's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, it really is. So, as always, folks, thank you so much for listening in, and uh, you'll hear from us next week.